You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Father Romanus Cesario. I teach moral theology at St. John Seminary in Brighton, from where these lectures entitled The Elements of Moral Theology are being filmed for the International Catholic University. This is the fifth lecture in a six-part series devoted to introducing significant themes that form part of Catholic moral theology and are indispensable for interpreting what the church teaches about the moral life. In the first hour-long sessions that you have available on tape, apart from introducing the series, we have looked at the nature of moral theology, in particular how it differs from moral philosophy and from secular ethics. We have then turned our attention to what I have been calling throughout these lectures the big picture. That is to say, we began to look at the world that moral theology exists in. It is a world illumined by divine revelation. It is a world that draws its resources from the biblical imagery and metaphors that communicate God's truth about human life and the human person. We have throughout these lectures referred to the human person as imago dei, made in the image of God, each one of us an image of God, who through the course of living out the lifespan allotted to us, perfects that image and comes to embrace those good ends that are our completion and perfection in this life, and that through the mercy of God and sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, conduce or lead us to beatific communion or fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what the Catechism of the Catholic Church calls the theological life, it alternately the theological life, not a life dedicated to the science of theology, that is to say, thinking about the truths of divine revelation and explicating them, but a life lived according to the spiritual dynamisms of faith, hope, and charity, of divine grace freely given to us. During the course of this lecture, you will see images from St. John's Seminary that portray 
the crucifixion, and in particular, a rude screen that dates from the middle part of the 20th century that depicts the crucified Christ and on either side figures representing the Blessed Virgin Mary and the beloved disciple Saint John. This is the world that the moral theologian inhabits. It is the world of the church represented by the beloved disciple confided by Christ himself to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Woman, behold thy son. The church on its way, its pilgrim way, throughout the centuries and in each one of us throughout the course of our lifetime. It is a world in which God's grace has already achieved everything that is necessary to transform us into good and holy persons. And that is why we find at the foot of the cross of Jesus standing there Mary, his mother, who embodies in her own person, by God's gracious design, a life without sin, immaculately conceived, the perfection of all the divine graces and goodness already exists. And then in the center, we see the incarnate Son of God, Christ, who by dying on the cross reverses the old curse brought into the world by Adam, the curse of original sin, and makes it possible for the moral theologian to talk optimistically about goodness in the world and the capacity of the human person to distinguish between good and bad, the capacity of the human person to achieve the good. Indeed, it enables the moral theologian to talk about a world in which goodness is not fragile, but is strongly rooted in the cross of Christ. This goodness is continuous with the goodness that God willed from all eternity for his creation. And that is why in the third lecture of this series, we gave an extended treatment of natural law, pointing out that the natural law is best understood by the theologian at least, in terms of the eternal pattern or logos, indeed the second person of the Blessed Trinity, in whom all things are created. A natural law that shows to us that our perfection and happiness is something that is to be achieved, and that the directions, inclinations, indeed precepts for that achievement are given in nature, are discoverable within the world of human experience, we saw that the moral theologian can look upon 
human nature, indeed the human body, not as something alien to human freedom or to personal fulfillment, but something which is trustworthy, something that the moral theologian needs to pay a great deal of attention to in order to understand what constitutes good and perfect comportment, behavior, action. In the fourth session, we turned our attention to human action and made the important point that human action and human character go together. Morality, if you will, is intrinsic. It is not extrinsic to human life such that it can be altered by a changed decision of an authority, the different viewpoint of a judge or a judicial system, the establishment of some new code, civil conduct. No, what we do makes who we are, action and character go together. And so it is very important that the Christian understand what direction to take in life, what decisions to make, what choices to make. It is extremely important for the moral theologian to help all of us to recognize what St. Thomas Aquinas talks about in a very lapidary phrase, ea quae sunt ad finem, to find out what those things are that lead us to the end, to the good end of human flourishing, to the good end of human perfection. And those things are our choices, our actions. Aquinas talks about them as things because each moral choice or action constitutes, as it were, a form of moral goodness that exists in the world. And this form can be compared to the forms that physical things enjoy and which makes them different one from the other. The form of the parakeet is not the form of the turnip. The form of the moon is not that of the sun. The form of the crocodile is not that of the magnolia and so forth. And so it is one thing to commit a just act, another thing to commit a chaste act. It is one thing to commit a brave act. It is another thing to commit a temperate act. And indeed, each of those good actions, those good forms, share in the form of prudence, which is the governing virtue that shapes every good choice. In this fifth lecture, we will talk more about the virtue of prudence and how it points out to us those things which are ad finem, those things which will lead us to the end that perfects and which in the final analysis 
will bring us, introduce us into the beatitude of heaven. Remember, Christ insists that the one who loves his neighbor loves God, the one who loves God loves his neighbor. At this point, I direct your attention to the big picture so that even as we discuss the evaluation of a human action, we will not forget that the moral theologian's interest remains the insertion of moral norms, moral determinations, moral directions into the big picture, which we could call, and perhaps should begin to call now, the big picture of happiness or of beatitude. Recall beatitude is a theological term used to differentiate the happiness of felicity that is available to man on, in the best case scenario, his own resources. Beatitude, which is of course the distinctive interest of the theologian, is a term reserved for fellowship, friendship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I usually designate the relationship between the good ends of human perfection or flourishing and eternal beatitude by a line that indicates that the movement from one to the other is inbuilt into the life of nature and grace, which is part of the church's life. I like the word conduce because there is a sense in which the one who fulfills the commandments, the one who loves his neighbor, thereby is led to love God, the God whom he cannot see. You'll have to pardon a bit of roughness in my voice this morning because we are taping these lectures in early January in Boston and we have had the first snowfall for more than 300 days, I'm told, and it has introduced some adjustments into the climate of the Massachusetts Bay Area. The big picture then of beatitude finds man, the creature, the human creature, placed between God and God, and the creative action that is of special concern to the moral theologian in this picture is that of natural law, the rational creature's participation in God's overarching plan for his creation, which from the time of St. Augustine has been known as the eternal law. It is because of the eternal law that we can make the claim that I did earlier in this lecture, namely, that each one of those things, the Ea, enjoys a form of moral goodness which itself is created by God. Now I know that it is, for many of you, something of an unfamiliar expression to speak 
about moral choices as things. But I think the intuition that Aquinas has in talking about those things which lead us or are toward the end, those things which make up a godly life, I think there's advantage to using his terminology insofar as it introduces us into what we need to know in order to evaluate the choices that we make. Let me explain that a little bit. When you understand the moral life as a continuum between our creation, our creation as images of God, and the perfection of that image in beatitude, then you recognize that maintaining the course by choosing, to be sure, but let's substitute another word, embracing those things which are ad finem, which are toward the end, which move us toward the end which perfect and develop us. We are in a very good position at that moment to understand Aquinas' preferred definition for sin. It is a choice to be sure, but within this context, let's say it is the embrace of something which falls short of the good end of human perfection and falls short of what is required to lead us into beatific communion, fellowship, happiness, heaven. The big picture now is taking on a certain prominence in our discussion. This is the world of sin, an action that falls short of achieving some end necessary for our perfection. Let's take one example. It's a simple and stock example, but one favored by the Old Testament, to be sure namely that of adultery. In the Old Testament, as you know, a sign that is frequently used to point out Israel's infidelity to the Lord. And from the Old Testament heritage, insofar as the Christian life is considered in nuptial terms, every sin is a sort of betrayal or adultery at least every serious sin. In any event, you may recall from the discussion of natural law that one of the first inclinations or precepts of the natural law concerns the coupling of male and female, the unitive aspect, but also the procreative aspect of the conjugal union. 
And the moral theologians argue that the reason why parents remain together after the birth of the child is precisely to provide not only for the conception and gestation of the new human life, but now for the specifically human rearing, education, upbringing of the child. These are issues that are at debate within our own society from a number of different vantage points. And this feature of natural law, which does not rely upon a particular church teaching in order for a theologian or any Christian believer for that matter to speak about the good of the state of marriage and the good of children within the family is a helpful way to enter into civil discourse, especially with people who are of different religious convictions or have different understandings of what Christian revelation entails. In any event, I think it is clear to see why the coital act, conjugal embrace, the one flesh of marriage, when it transpires in the proper way between a married man and woman, constitutes a perfective action, indeed constitutes a perfective end for each of the partners, and indeed for the whole human race insofar as in this particular action, the generation of new life and of the generations to come is at stake. Take away the marriage vow, take away the promise of exclusivity that goes with this kind of coupling for all of the reasons which are still known by our society, though perhaps not always respected, and introduce into the marriage union a third partner, some other person not married or a spouse of someone else. And now the coital act, rather than achieving the perfection, which is by divine plan and God's own purpose, indispensable for human beings and for the human society as a whole, is thwarted. And that act falls short of the end. It falls short of the end because the partner in adultery, by definition, is not committed to what the unitive aspect of the coital act requires, fidelity, perpetuity, and still less committed, perhaps impeded from being committed, to the procreative act and what it entails, namely the establishment of a family and the upbringing of children. You see then that adultery is not, or for that matter, no sinful action finds its sinfulness or wrongness simply in the fact that there is a commandment or a law that forbids it. Rather, some actions, and adultery is surely one of them, are wrong by nature, as Aquinas says. It is because in no way can they perfect or fulfill what is the human good at stake 
in the action under consideration. Once this is understood, it becomes a little easier to understand language which has found its way even into the catechism of the Catholic Church and which is used in the evaluation of a moral act, namely the language of object, end, and circumstance. If we take now action X and let X stand for any human action, let X stand for any moral choice, if you will, how do we know that a particular action that presents itself to us is good or bad? How do we know that a particular action that presents itself to us leads to the end, to the good end of human perfection, or falls short of it. And I think you can understand why moral theologians insist on the importance of this evaluation, because it is very, very important to know whether you are moving toward happiness or away from it. It's very, very important to know whether the actions that you engage in are perfecting you or corrupting your character. It's very, very important. One of, and moral theologians put great emphasis on this element of their teaching, to know whether an action merits, gains eternal happiness with God or contributes to its loss. And so, a long tradition has established a tripartite analysis of human action, which is usually rendered object, end, and circumstance. That's traditional language, which needs now to be interpreted, especially because there is some overlap, a duplication in the use of the word end. But first, let's talk about object because it constitutes the first determination of a moral action. If you think of the etymology of Ichiens, throwing something up against, you will see that object, when used in the moral sense, points to that which engages a particular kind of chosen activity. When the husband chooses to embrace his wife in the coital embrace, the object of that action is marital coitus. It is an exercise of the virtue of marital chastity. It is a fulfillment of the one flesh of marriage. To use the language of John Paul II, it is the exercise of the nuptial meaning of the body. 
When, however, the same action is tended towards a person who does not qualify for the nuptial embrace, and there are many examples that can be given, but to stay with the case of adultery, here now someone else's married partner, the very same action, which is the one flesh of marriage, turns from being a perfective act and one that realizes the end for which the coupling of male and female has been ordained by God. And so, if we introduce into this example a partner for the coital embrace who is not joined in marriage, is not part of the one flesh of marriage. That is to say, we introduce a partner of adultery, the very same action, which is the coital embrace, now falls short of the perfection that God has ordained for the human race in marriage, in the fact that man and woman come together, that they bear children, that they remain united, that they live out their vocation, and the vocation of the one flesh with everything that is dictated by the requirements of the unitive and procreative aspects of marriage, that end is not achieved. The pleasure of the coital act is separated from the good end that it is meant to accomplish or achieve. It falls short, and that falling short to use the language we began with, is not ad finem, but in the example cited, adultery, quite opposed to it. Let's take another example of an object where the same action, this time the action of snipping, is aimed in the one case at the hair on one's head, and in another case at the vast deferens, for example, which is part of the reproductive anatomy of the male, you see that the same action snipping combined with two different objects produces two different kinds of actions. We have names for them. In the one case, barbering, or if you want to change the example to that of the fingernails, you could say a manicure. But in the other case, we have a word, sterilization, because what is snipped is an indispensable part of the human reproductive system. Moral objects have the great value of telling us what it is that we are doing. And we need to know about them, 
and it may not be possible to analyze them with the precision that we find in the moral philosopher and theologians of quality, but we need to be attentive to moral objects because they constitute the first determination of a moral action, human action, and without knowing the object, the moral object, then we are quite at a loss to know whether that action is in conformity with God's plan for our happiness or not. Secondly, what the Catechism calls end. No one hearing this lecture at this point is not thinking, well, that's true, it's important to know what you are doing, but when I think about my moral actions, when I think about me as an acting person, when I think about moral activity, I'm concerned about my intentions and purposes. I think about the question, why? Why did I go to the barber for a haircut? Why did I go to the manicurist for a manicure? And in some cases, why have I contemplated the thought of a therapeutic sterilization in the male? And for most people, the why or the purpose or the intention of an action is what they consider most determinative for their personal engagement in it. The language of moral theology then speaks about each action as having its end, and the end is the personal meaning that comes to bear on an action which shapes it and whereby I, as it were, make it my own. We know from an example within the New Testament that some good deeds, that is to say good actions, good moral objects, can be perverted by bad ends. That is to say, if I give my money to the poor in order to be thought well of by others, well, I have my reward. If I commit theft, or to take the classic case, even adultery, but in order to achieve a good purpose, distribute funds to those who are in need, in the first case, obtain release from unjust imprisonment, perhaps in the second case, sleeping with prison guards, then surely the intention and the good intention overrides, transforms, and in some way puts a different face on the actions of thievery and adultery, of fornication. It is a perpetual temptation on the part of moral theologians to want to juggle the relationship between moral objects and intentions in such a way as to allow intention to play a greater role in the determination of the moral good than in fact it does. 
And that is why, in my judgment, it is so important to understand the church's teleological moral theology. And why, too, in my judgment, it is so important to see the big picture. Because while it is true that alone moral objects simply identify the kind of action that we are engaged in, that information is very, very important for our well-being. Still, it is also the case that because the moral object is freely chosen, that we bring to the moral object our own personal intentions, meanings, purposes, that do shape and guide it, but can never, never, never override the determination brought to that action by its object. And the reason for that, of course, is that an action that falls short of the end is outside of the reach of any good intention to push it back up and make it achieve the end. It just can't happen. And if we want to know the reason in the big picture, the simplest way to explain it, in my view, is to say that that kind of effort puts the person in conflict with the eternal law, puts an individual in conflict with how God knows the world to be. And that is a state of conflict that no person, no individual, wants to find him or herself in. Object, end, and circumstances. We are talking here about how to evaluate any given human action, let the X stand for that. The reason why the catechism and the tradition identifies end as the subjective side of the moral analysis is because the church recognizes that our participation in this walk through life, our participation in the moral life is, after all, a free and conscious activity. You will remember in the previous lecture, when speaking about human action, the basic requirements for an action to be a human one, that is to say a moral one, is that it proceeds from within interiority and with knowledge of the end. And the supposition is that end here represents both of those conditions for moral action, human action. It also supposes that the human person, the imago, is in conformity already with the good end of human perfection and happiness that is indispensable for the person to become the kind of person God wants us to become.
Sometimes you hear the expression, in the end is our beginnings, and the poet speaks that way, and the expression grasps something of what are the dynamics of the moral life that are under consideration here by reason of the threefold determination of object, end, and circumstance. There remains the third determination, and that is the circumstance or circumstances. It's perhaps the easiest one of the three for us to grasp because all of us are all too familiar with the fact that human actions do not transpire in a vacuum or void. They are not those things that are removed from the world of human experience. No, they are inserted into it. Indeed, they become the fabric of our human experience. And for that reason, are circumstantial precisely because each action has its own history. Where was I when I gave food to the hungry? Who was the person in need for whom I sustained the burden of providing care? Why was it that I took time to instruct the ignorant? These are the circumstances, and each of those questions as an answer, why? Because a valued teacher asked me to do it. Who was the person, a close relative, a friend? Each action then has its own historical concreteness that we describe under the general term of circumstances, those things that stand around the action, so to speak. Many people try to make their moral evaluation of actions based only on an account of circumstances. I had to do it because there were so many people there. If I didn't tell a lie, I would have been embarrassed in front of all of my friends and other examples that could be given. It is so much the case that there is even a school of moral theology that takes pride in evaluating actions only on the basis of the particular historical contingencies, or if you will, the situation in which the human person finds him or herself. And many of you have heard of situation ethics. What we have learned in this lesson, of course, is that such a procedure is fraught with risk, risk particularly of missing the ends that are perfective. But what is more important, we've learned that in order to evaluate a human action, all three elements, object, end, and circumstances, need to be heeded, attended to, the first and primary determination will be the object for the simple reason that we need to know what we are doing. And it is one thing to snip a lock of hair as part of good grooming, it's 
quite another thing to snip the aorta that will result in the death of a person. We need to know what it is we're doing, for it's one thing to take money that belongs to us, quite another thing to take money that belongs to someone else. That's not a circumstance, it's part of the object. It's one thing to engage in sexual activity with the spouse to whom I'm committed to love, to remain with forever, and to rear children that God gives to the union. Quite another thing to engage in sexual activity with whatsoever person for the sake ultimately of the pleasure contained therein and without reference to those goods, which are the goods, of course, of marriage. We need to know what it is we're doing and our own personal end, our intention or our motive should be shaped by that object so as to bring us into conformity with choosing and wanting and intending that end, that object, in a way that is in conformity with the divine plan. It may not always be joyful. Within marriage, it should be by divine plan. It at times can be burdensome, as in the example of taking care of the sick parent or friend, and yet the personal intention that is brought to bear on that object, caring for the sick parent or friend, can be one that is inspired by fortitude. It can be one which recognizes that this is a burden that I must sustain because it forms part of those things which are bringing me, not to mention the beneficiary of my care, to the good end of human perfection. Within that alchemy of personal intention and moral object, we'll be able to recognize the circumstances that will in some way contribute to the upbuilding of that action, at times modifies the action a bit, but never overrides the primary determination of the object, or for that matter, of the personal end or intention. Now, the subject of this lecture is one that draws heavily from the work of moral philosophers, and I myself would be unhappy if I were not able at this point to propose to you a text by Professor Ralph McInerney entitled Ethica Thomistica, The Moral Philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. I'm showing you the revised edition that recently has come out at the Catholic University of America Press in Washington, D.C. It is a volume that I highly recommend to those of you that are following these lectures. I highly recommend it because, as you can see, Professor McInerney has been able to say a great deal in a very short and compendious fashion, and his scholarship in this area is one that I think you will find very refreshing and illuminating and will help you to see some of the more detailed features of the way in which 
moral theologians go about undertaking an evaluation of a moral action. As I bring this lecture to a close, however, I want to insist that the moral theologian adds to the moral philosopher's reflections by reminding us that the urgency of making good choices in our daily lives, the urgency of doing the right thing attaches to the Christian believer or comes to the Christian believer because of Christ's command, love one another. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.